Hi, my name is Jake Swanley. Uh, it's wonderful. It's my third time of coming out to preach here at Gospel Church Midlinton. Uh, my third preach uh, in this church in the th- a third venue. Uh, it's very exciting uh, to come out here. I was just reflecting when I was sitting there by myself. Um, being able to come and go has enabled me to see uh, the work of God in a, new, in a different way. He's taking ground for his kingdom here in Midlinton and around. Uh, you guys, you see the gradual growth and you see things change slowly. But I come and I go and I get to see a whole new thing every time I come. Uh, the thir- first time I came out here to uh, preach was in John's back shed. Uh, and that was great. I, I'm not going to complain about that. It was wonderful. Uh, and then it was in the hall down the road and now it's here. It's been an incredible thing to be able to visit with you, uh, to pray for you every week at Anchor Church. Uh, we pray for this church every Sunday. Uh, we have a gathering before. We also support a church in Poland. The two churches we pray for every Sunday are you guys and a church in Poland. Uh, I am, when I'm not glorifying Port Power uh, around the place, I am, absolutely, I was going to take that picture down, I tell you. Uh, I felt like they were staring at me in my back as I was preaching. But uh, the, um, uh, yeah, I am the lead pastor of Anchor Church Port Adelaide. We've been running a, or, or serving the Lord as a gathering for about three years in the port now. Uh, we've had uh, ample opportunity to persevere as a church. I will always tell new church plants, the Lord in His grace will always give you opportunity to persevere. Uh, there was in, uh, we rented a bar kind of like this. It's wonderful you guys own it. We um, had the use of it of a Sunday morning and five weeks in a row uh, on the Friday night, they cancelled our access to it on Sunday. Uh, so we met on the beach in someone's backyard, in an alley, in a different pub. Uh, we've learnt and grown in godliness in our character through perseverance. Uh, today it is uh, a blessing to me to open up Luke 18, 1 to 17 with you. And what I really want to draw out of it, uh, which is very much there in the text, is the necessity to persevere and the hope that inspires you to persevere. Jesus uh, is contemplating the reality that he will be going soon. He's going to be uh, executed Uh, in a gross miscarriage of justice, uh, and his people are going to be, 12 of them or whatever it is, gathering in an upper room, up against the collected might of the Roman Empire, and they'll be given over to despair and the desire to quit. Jesus is preparing them for what is to come. And make no mistake, in his word, Jesus is preparing you as well for what is to come. Those, and I think older God, people who've been in the faith a long time uh, can tell people who are newer in the faith, if you haven't yet had the opportunity to persevere, God is going to bless you with that one day. Uh, so let's pray and we'll get started uh, having a look at what we are in today. Heavenly Father, I thank you enormously, Lord, the joy it is to see uh, this city on a hill, this uh, light to the world, are growing and burning brighter here in Midlinton, Lord. Father, we pray that you would build them and protect them and just breathe energy and joy into their life, Lord, that they, uh, their love for one another uh, would reveal that they are truly disciples of yours, Christ. It would be a testimony to the world that joy is found in loving the Lord, our God, with all their heart, uh, might, soul, strength, Lord, and that in loving one another more than ourselves father Uh, there is joy and there is peace and there is hope for the world in those things 
So we pray through the power of your spirit. <coughs> we are gripped freshly and find the energy to continue uh, working in a culture that is not our friend. But Father, it never was. <coughs> and yet your word triumphs. Your spirit is at work. You, Jesus, are building your kingdom and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So Father, we pray. Uh, thank you for all the incredible work that you did give us. <coughs> and Lord, we pray for the strength to carry it out. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, <coughs> I would like to begin with a quote uh, from a famous leader, Winston Churchill, uh, the British Prime Minister who stared down the evil of the Nazi regime. Uh, and he was invited back to his old school and he was asked to speak what he had learned from his years in leadership as they resisted an evil empire coming against what was a democratic uh, nation. Uh, in his address to his graduating class in 1941, he shared his wisdom to the students about everything he had learned in that fight. And he simply said this, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never give in, in nothing, in great or small, in large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honour and good sense. That's what he'd learnt in fighting evil. He was trying to drill into these young men and women the necessity of persevering when times are difficult and when persecution is reality and death is imminently possible. During the war with Nazi Germany, he rallied his people time and time again with speeches like this after France fell. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. And we shall fight in the hills and we shall never surrender. And never surrender is exactly what they did. They fought until the battle was over and they were victorious. As much as anything, and I've been invited to assess potential church planters in the Acts 29 network, and I'm telling you the one determining factor, as much as anything in, that I see in the difference between churches that, are, that grow and thrive and function as a light of hope to their community, are the churches that have the mindset that we will persevere. It's the one thing. It's not enough that when times are good, you celebrate when the people of God depend on God when times are tough that things are built that last uh, are you uh, what does that look like for Gospel Church Midlinton uh, I want to say you are absolutely in a fight uh, you may not think of what, it, what you do when you gather and when you praise and when you worship and when you pray and when you open your Bible together as a fight but Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 for we the collected saints do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So part of what we do, who we are, is wrestling and fighting against evil to glorify God. Glorifying God comes with a cost. And it takes discipline finding joy in the things of God in the face of opposition. So Jesus, like Churchill, speaks to his people about the importance of not giving up 
that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. That's the purpose of our first parable. That is to say, never despair, never, ever, ever, people of God, give into despair and cease praying. Our first point, I'll read our parable, the first one. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I'm sure we're familiar, most people are familiar with what a parable is. It is a story that uses situations familiar to its audience. Here's the thing. Parables always and only use situations familiar to its audience to make usually one big point. So in this carriage of misjustice against somebody who is defenseless in the culture, this is a scenario that is very familiar to Jesus' audience. They're not going as if such a thing could happen. They know this happens. They know Power is unjust in culture. The people of God suffer injustices. Uh, Our first character is a widow. Widows across the Old and New Testaments are the people cast as those least able to provide for themselves. By definition, this widow has to have lost her husband and now she has an adversary. The one in their culture who is to provide for her and to ensure her well-being and to seek her joy above his own even is gone and he has been replaced by an adversary who is now looking to plunder what she has and to make her despair as he seeks to bring that joy and hoard it in his own life. Someone is trying to take what is rightfully hers. Now we wonder who could such an adversary be. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus warns his people, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. It is so often the significant leaders of the community who practice injustice against the weakest. But what is injustice? We should get our head around that as we unpack this parable together. And it simply means this, uh, to receive or give treatment according to, justice is to receive treatment according to righteousness and not by any other measure. When we seek to give people certain treatment, not according to righteousness, but according to ethnicity or wealth or friendship level or connection or authority, anything other than righteousness, we are no longer practicing justice. Justice and righteousness are linked. The widow wants her situation to be considered through the lens of the righteousness of what has happened. What should be, what does righteousness dictate should happen in the example. 
and it is often the powerful and is most likely a powerful person doing this. But the judge is uninterested. Twice Jesus described the judge in the parable as neither fearing God nor respecting man. So that, what is the purpose of the law? Right? To love and fear the Lord your God and to love your neighbour as you love yourself. Who is the man in our culture, really, who uh, is being entrusted with the practice of justice? Someone who is deeply ungodly. Right? Jesus said he's the opposite of what it means to be godly. And this judge is uninterested in justice. His only interest, his only motivation as this unfolds is his own self-interest. What will I do to protect my level of comfort? Becomes his motivation. Yet the shock is uh, because he senses he will lose comfort by uh, refusing to entertain the widow's plea, he grants her the justice she longs for. That's our parable. So parables often contrast how sinful people behave and with how God behaves. If you go through and you make a Bible reading plan, you'll often see that one of the, the tools or the way parables are put together is to compare what a sinful human being will do compared to the perfect righteous response of how God or what God would do. And in this parable, we contrast the unjust judge with God. Jesus is making the point that the God we serve is a God who vindicate, vindicates and avenges his people. If justice is available, even when you are the most powerless in your culture, and even when the very organs of justice have been corrupted into something deeply ungodly, there is still an echo of justice available in our culture. How much more is justice available through God? We can expect justice, says Jesus, when we petition the God who cares about justice and loves his people. We can expect to be treated righteously by God when we come to him in prayer. Isaiah 30, 18 to 19 says this, For the Lord is a God of justice, right? the treatment according to righteousness. Blessed are all those who wait for him, for a people shall dwell in Zion, Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. So we start to see Jesus is fleshing out something that is real and, and revealed in the Old Testament. That, that, that cry for justice, that thing in us that, dis, the, that is broken when we are treated poorly and not according to righteousness, when we are excluded on the basis of something other than sin or righteousness, that when we cry to God, it is when He acts. He says, surely He'll be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And so this starts to cut a little bit right now when we start to talk about Perseverance Church. Because I want to say, do we cry out to prayer in prayer to God as we ought? If Jesus is saying you are, you are at risk of being filled with despair and you are at risk of being scattered by an organized, powerful enemy, are we crying out, as it says, day and night? 
a stat I heard in college, uh, it's a few years ago and I have no idea how they gathered this stat what it, or even what the term average Christian might mean. But the stat is this, that the average Christian in Australia prays for two minutes a day. For two minutes a day. And that the average pastor in Australia prays for four. That doesn't sound like a people crying out to the Lord day and night. Jesus gives us this parable because he knows his sheep. He loves his sheep. He knows we will be tempted to give up praying. And he reminds us, when the Lord hears your cry, he acts. So don't stop. I think one of the reasons we give up, and I reflected on what this passage looks like in my life, when I've had dry seasons of prayer and have been left spiritually dry because of it, is the reality is that prayer can be difficult. Prayer can be difficult. It's a battle, ongoing and ever-present. It so often involves hoping against hope. This is how Paul describes Abraham's desperate prayer to have a son. He's received these promises of God that he'll be a father of many nations. He'll have all these descendants. And yet, as an old man, he is yet to have his son. In Romans 4, 8, it describes uh, Abraham's prayer to God as hoping against hope. Isn't it better to just not go, to let your mind go to that place than then go into the place of hoping against hope? Opening yourself up to the pain of perseverance. We are in a conflict where justice has become a mutated, broken thing. Our state is as broken, South Australia, as anywhere. Right now, recently, our state, our state government passed uh, full-term abortion laws. And the stats would say we pray two minutes a day. Pastors four. Are you crying out? Are you pleading the cause of the least powerless as a church? Or have we given up? It just looks too... We're not prepared to hope against hope that God will do something spectacular. Jesus reassures you in this passage. God hears your prayers. Like the whole point of it is that your loving Father hears your prayers, that the basis of your hope in prayer is not your character, it's His. The audience you receive from God, as, your, as, as it was mentioned, that the, your prayers go up into the throne room of God. The hope in that is God's character and God's presence, not your righteousness. You can cry out to him day and night. He says he will establish justice for his people. And he says he'll do it quickly here, and that can hurt. I don't know, I don't know enough of you to know that I, I, but I do know, or I could guess, there are people here today who feel that justice and the answer to a righteous prayer has been a long time coming. 
and there is frustration and there is like, does God actually, like you're sitting here and you're like, go Jake, preach it, preach it, treat but inside you're like, no, he doesn't. He hasn't heard my prayer. It may seem like a long time coming to us. In Hebrews 10.37 we see, yet for a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. This was written 2,000 years ago. It won't be long till Jesus returns. In Romans 2.4, we read about the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. So we see that God is promised in his word to act swiftly for his people. Yet he is also by nature merciful and patient and forbearing. How do we marry those things up in reality? Well, we could say that God acts swiftly according to his sense of time, not ours. There is comfort in that. Uh, but I'm going to paraphrase Kim Keller uh, and why it is that, and how it is that we understand when God answers prayer and not, not. He says that God answers our prayers when and how we would if we knew what he knows. God answers prayer how we would answer prayer and when we would answer prayer if we just knew what he knew which is to say we are imperfect in what we see. And it's to say that he is perfect in what he sees and we have to give way to his wisdom. In Bible college in uh, Sydney, in my first two years as a younger man, I, I may have been a little bit fitter than what I am now, uh, I was in the gym uh, and I tore uh, all the muscles across the back of my spine uh, and progressively over like the next 10, 15 years, that condition deteriorated until I could not get out of bed. Uh, I was bedridden by the third month in Bible college. And the, and the Bible college got together and prayed, and the next day I got out of bed, and I've never had a twinge since. God answered a prayer swiftly. I've been praying for a woman in our church to recover from a similar condition now for two years. All I can say is God knows exactly what he's doing. And I have to rest in that. We have to rest in that. We persevere in prayer. Knowing that from the perspective of eternal glory, we will one day view these things and we will testify that our prayers were indeed answered perfectly. One day, all of us will testify from eternity in glory that yes, God, you have answered prayer perfectly. We just don't know what that looks like now. So we persevere and we keep asking him for his grace and his mercy. The point being, if we are indeed to testify one day, we have to be praying. We have to be praying. Jesus says in his word, God says in Isaiah, prayer is answered for those who cry out day and night. We can't complain if we're not praying. Jesus transitions and he begins the next parable. So the first parable concerned itself with where do we find the hope of justice? And this is answered. The hope of justice is through the character of God through the practice of prayer. The hope of righteousness to be the guiding principle in our community and in our lives is through the character of God and the practice of prayer. In our next section, in our next parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus explores the other great need we have. We have. If we have justice is going to be established, 
and we look honestly in the mirror, then we have to have find hope for God to have mercy. Or for all that we would wish for God's justice and perfect righteousness to be established, well, that's bad news. That's actually bad news for us if it also doesn't carry within it the hope of mercy. I'll read verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, Jesus has drawn two fictional characters out of situations very familiar to his listeners. And he's placed them in a location very familiar to his listeners. For the first one, the Pharisee. He's entered and he has no hope of receiving God's mercy. We know that by the end. Why does he not have any hope of receiving God's mercy? He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. See, the Pharisees were a movement of priests who were concerned with the moral decline of Israel in the years between the end of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus. They were exemplary in their pursuit and zealousness to be righteous. It's what they desired. It's what they fought for. They wanted to be the best obeyers of the law that they could be. So much so that they established loads of rules that acted as a barrier between them and sin. Right? It's a bit like you'll often see in churches today. Uh, I will make it a sin to drink alcohol so that the sin that can be produced from that will be absent from my life. That's wise for some people to say that. But when we start making rules about these things, we get ourselves into a spot of trouble. A, a young married couple, they've been married about two weeks uh, came to me and they said, oh, we, we are never going to drink alcohol again because we have a rule in our life that if we're not prepared to do it in the middle of the church service, we're not prepared to do it at home and I'm not prepared to drink in the middle of the church service, I'm not going to do it at home. To which I replied, you've been married two weeks, mate, how far are you going to take that rule? I don't think they'd thought it through. <laughs> what can be wise becomes difficult or problematic when we make it an ironclad rule for everybody and think that we are achieving righteousness through that. The only result of the Pharisees thinking that their hope of dwelling with God forever was on the basis of separating themselves from sin and sinners, the only fruit or result of that was that they put themselves, distance between themselves and sin, between themselves and sinful people, and between themselves and Jesus Christ. That's all rule to do. Did not succeed in putting distance between this Pharisee and sin. Jesus describes the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. They look good but are full of death, thinking they are righteous 
that all they had managed to do was build pride in themselves and contempt for other people. That's a dangerous place to be. Believing yourself to be good because you aren't as visibly bad as somebody else. There's a warning here. Jesus is the standard, not your neighbour. So the Pharisee stands confidently in the place of God's worship, looking only at the tax collector, worshipping only himself, ridiculing others, not seeking mercy. He's completely misunderstood the role of the law in the life of of the Christian. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What we need to understand, what the Pharisees missed. The purpose of the law is to tell us that we need mercy, not reveal that we don't. One of the purposes God has given his law to you in the form of the Ten Commandments is that when you read it, you realize you are not that. And now you're in a place of needing mercy. So many people miss the purpose of the law. But shockingly, right, the tax collector gets it. The crowd hearing even his name or the mention of a character like this would have been filled with revulsion. So disliked are they in Israel. I'm trying to get my head around how I might feel, how they felt. All I can come up with would be an abortion doctor. That's the depth of revulsion they feel towards a tax collector. They were seen as the ultimate betrayers of Israel, betrayers of God. Yet, God's law has worked its purpose through the power of the Spirit in him. It's revealed he needs mercy. He's conscious he needs mercy. He can't even look towards heavens. He stands distant from God where the Pharisees stood, it makes a point in his own strength in the centre of all things and felt strong and comfortable and worthy of being where he is. This tax collector stands at a distance and can't even look to where God dwells. And he beats his chest because the law has revealed to him He needs mercy. He needs mercy. Jesus finishes, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. Remember, there's a lot of Pharisees listening to this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a weird way to finish. When we are humble, we are exalted. When you are one thing, you are actually its opposite. Contained in this this puzzle is our hope of dwelling with God in glory for eternity. And that basis of our hope, the means by which this sinful collector who is humble but going to be exalted, who is sinful but going to be declared justified and righteous, is what theologians call imputation. Imputation. It means, imputation means that your justified standing in the presence of God, the means by which you stand before him, is because you are grounded in a righteousness that is not your own. You are humble 
to be exalted, you must have it from somewhere that you don't produce within yourself. It's what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, a righteousness given to us by Jesus, the only one <coughs> who ever kept the law perfectly in his life and was worthy of being exalted. And here's <coughs> what we miss so often in our gospel presentations, and it's at the beating heart of what we've just explained in this parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. If somebody says to you, how does Jesus save people? You might say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and that's true. But it's not enough. It's not enough. He has to have taken away your guilt and remove your punishment, yes. He has to take away that humiliation. But Christ wants to give you, if you're going to be yourselves, his exaltation. This is where the hope is, guys. That yes, Christ took from you your sin and we celebrate that on the cross. But that's not the equivalent to salvation. The fullness of that salvation is that he then gifted you his life of perfect obedience to the Father. When you humble, when the law has humbled you and you've come to a place of only bringing nothing into the presence of God but your need for his mercy. He takes away the reality and put it on Jesus who went from exaltation to humiliation in order to take you from humiliation to exaltation. This is the fullness of your salvation. This is how the tax collector was saved. He received righteousness from God and God received his sin and extinguished it on the cross. Our first parable shows us that the hope for justice and for righteousness to be uh, the flagpole that we gather around in our life and, and flavor our community with comes from the character of God and is brought into a fruition through prayer. This second parable shows us that the hope of mercy that we need springs from the love of God who entered this world and lived in perfect righteousness to give you that righteousness and take the sin upon himself. So Jesus is out lying for his people who are about to suffer terribly at the hands of the Roman Empire. They're going to be rejected by many, many people. They're all, all but one, I think, die a horrible death. He's like, remember and persevere in this. In Christ you have access to perfect justice and perfect mercy and a living hope. Jesus gives them, and they must understand something deep, not the fullness of it. Uh, but people respond in our last section. They're bringing their kids to Christ. They want their kids to be blessed by Jesus. They're bringing them so he would touch them and bless them. And the disciples being, well, the disciples, you've got to love this, uh, they rebuke the people for doing this. Because that's, you know, if you're walking around with Jesus, you'd guess that's what Jesus would want you to do, is prevent uh, people bringing the kids to be blessed by you, it it's, doesn't make sense. So Jesus takes them aside and explains to his people 
that access to this hope Jesus has been talking about is available, and here's the thing, is only available for those who are childlike. This access to this hope of dwelling in perfect justice for in eternity with God and of receiving His mercy and His righteousness bestowed upon you is to those who enter childlike. Now the point isn't about children. The point isn't that uh, the, the, the children possess a certain virtue that means they get access to God. It's not their innocence and their sense of wonder that brings them, that Jesus says, bring to me. That would mean for all of us, there were certain virtues we had to possess in order to access the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's not what the children possess that Christ is highlighting for us here. Here's the thing. It's what they lack. The children are welcomed into the blessing of Christ because they are small, they are powerless, they are without sophistication. In this culture, they are overlooked and they are dispossessed. They are the foolish and the weak of the world in that culture. Jesus finishes by emphasizing in the strongest way possible that the kingdom of God is open to those who are helpless, powerless, weak. Nothing like the Pharisee standing, worshipping himself in the temple. The childlike in their weakness cry out to God for help. They cry out day and night for God to right wrongs, to forgive them. The childlike know they are utterly dependent on the Heavenly Father and go to Him for all their needs. The childlike go to God for everything. They know they bring nothing to the table. Let's finish. We are in a moment in Luke where Jesus has been in an escalating conflict with the Pharisees. Uh, soon they will have Jesus murdered in an obvious case of injustice. It is what their culture did. It's what our culture does. Uh, he, when Jesus returns, justice will be established perfectly forever. And when Jesus returns, those who have come to him realizing their need, the law has done its work. They realize their need. And when they cry out to him, they will be given perfect, loving mercy. And Jesus gives them this message so that until he returns, all those who hear it, all those involved in the church's war against the spiritual darkness and forces of evil in this world, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, the gates of hell will not stand against the church. Right? The gates of hell, defensive, cannot stand against the church. This is the church. It's on a war footing against the gates of hell. And he says, until I return, as you fight this fight, don't despair when it looks overwhelmingly impossible that victory would come your way. Remember, your hope is in the character of God, not yourself. 
and he hears when you pray. So persist in prayer. Be praying that our state government would end these obscene laws. Pray that the people who are vulnerable in your community experience the grace and love that you all participate in as Christ's children here together. Pray for one another in situations where people are being bullied at work. Pray for one another if you are that bully at work. Be called to be just and righteous. Let the knowledge of your sin drive you to God for mercy instead of away from God in despair. Big one, guys. I don't know how many times in my early days I let my sin drive me away from God. When the heart of the gospel is I need to be driven towards God. And receive his mercy and his grace. We do these things knowing that one day we will be dwelling with God in glory and that every tear will be wiped away. We have a living hope. We have a present reality and a living hope.